0: The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 16, beginning at verse 20. We'll be reading through verse 32 this morning, the word of the Lord. Whoever gives thought to the word will discover good, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. The wise of heart is called discerning, and sweetness of speech is "'increases persuasiveness. "'Good sense is a fountain of life to him who has it, "'but the instruction of fools is folly. "'The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious "'and adds persuasiveness to his lips. "'Gracious words are like a honeycomb, "'sweetness to the soul and health to the body. "'There is a way that seems right to a man.' But its end is the way of death. A worker's appetite works for him, his mouth urges him on. A worthless man plots evil, and his speech is like a scorching fire. A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. A man of violence entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. Whoever winks his eyes plans dishonest things. He who purses his lips brings evil to pass. Gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes the city. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the letter of James, James chapter 4, beginning at verse 11. We'll be reading through verse 17 this morning, which is also the end of the chapter, the word of our God. Do not speak evil against one another. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, and he is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. For whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Which is more important, faith or love? The author of Hebrews tells us that without faith it is impossible to please the Lord. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And since the chief purpose of our life is to please and glorify the Lord, We might think that faith, therefore, is the most important thing in our lives, even more important than love. But then we open up 1 Corinthians, and in chapter 13, we hear this. The Apostle Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. It's difficult to hear those words, and not to conclude that love is in fact the most important thing, the most important reality. What should take pride of place in our lives? And in fact, the two great commandments are about love. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So which is it? Well, in one sense, it's kind of a pointless question to ask. The Lord has so woven together faith, faith hope, and love in the Christian life but that it is impossible for us to separate them from each other. We do, in fact, need to distinguish faith from love, lest anyone should imagine that the love that God is working in their hearts somehow gets added to Christ's finished work as the ground of their justification. You know, I'm I'm justified by what Christ has done out there for me, and I'm also justified by what Christ is doing in here in me. That would be a tragic mistake. And therefore, it's critical that we distinguish faith from love. Justification by faith alone safeguards the truth that justification is by Christ alone alone. You know, as we sometimes sing, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Uh, That nothing, if you can put it this way, includes even the things that God is doing in your life. It includes the love in your heart that the Holy Spirit is bringing about. So distinguishing genuine faith from the love that the Holy Spirit works in our hearts is vital. Separating that Faith from true love turns out to be impossible. Nevertheless, in another sense, as Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, there is a special preeminence which which can rightly be placed on love. Paul tells us that when everything else passes away from this present life, faith, hope, and love will remain. But the greatest of these is love. We'll say more about that toward the end of the sermon. In the portion of God's word for this morning's sermon, James calls us to see how intertwined faith, hope, and love, in fact, really are. Critically, genuine faith in God always, please mark the always there, genuine faith in God always manifests itself in concrete acts of love towards other Christians. And in fact, genuine faith in God liberates us so that we can truly love other people on a consistent basis for the first time in our lives. We will be looking at this morning's passage under three headings. First, faith, that is genuine faith, faith leads to a love that builds up. Second, trust the Lord for your future, and third, do good in the present. Let me give those to you again. Faith leads to the love that builds up. Trust the Lord for your future. Do good in the present. We begin with the practical command that we are to build each other up in love. Uh, James explores this theme by talking about how we can easily get it wrong. Uh, Those of you who teach know that this is actually one of those realities of just how illustrations work. It is often much easier to come up with concrete, specific illustrations of how to get something wrong than it is to come up with illustrations on how to get something right. And in order to move so that we actually change our lives, we have to move from talking about abstract principles to concrete instances. And so James here gives us some illustrations of how we get it wrong. Notice I didn't just say how we could get it wrong, but how we do get it wrong. These are common problems for all of us as Christians. Nevertheless, we should remember that the Holy Spirit's goal here is not simply to point out how we get it wrong. Rather, the Holy Spirit is leading us to the place where we, in fact, will get it right and by his grace be building each other up with genuine love. Verses 11 and 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, and he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you To judge your neighbor. So, what exactly is James telling us when he writes, do not speak evil against one another? Um, For Bible scholars, it turns out this is a surprisingly difficult passage to translate. And it's not difficult because we don't understand what it means. We do understand what it means. The difficulty comes from whatever English words we use to translate it, we're going to leave out part of what James is getting at. So let's begin by asking this question. What is it that James is not teaching in this passage? I think that's important for us to get in our minds. What is it that James does not have in mind? James is not telling us that we should not be discerning with respect to other human beings. There is a type of judgment of discernment that we are repeatedly called to make in the Bible. I mean, Jesus himself says, judge... A righteous judgment. That is, according to Jesus, there are times in our lives when Jesus Christ requires you to judge what another another human being is doing or what they are saying. And that, of course, makes good sense. If you think about all the things the Lord calls us to do uh, as Christians, a a large number of them require us to make a right assessment of what other people are doing or what they are saying. I mean, think about the proverb, bad company corrupts good morals. Go ahead, apply that. Well, you know, the only way you can apply that proverb to your life, the wisdom that God wants you to have, is if you pass a righteous judgment in determining who the bad company actually is. If you never determine who the bad company is, you can't apply this to your life. Or consider the opening words of the first psalm. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Beloved, God is calling you to be that blessed person. But the blessed person can only do this if they rightly pass judgment. But there are people... People they identify as the wicked, the sinners, and the scoffers. Don't do that. We can't follow the Lord's guidance that we wouldn't associate with such people. So the Lord is not saying don't be discerning. Um, I'm kind of pounding the table on this because in our culture today, it is so common for people to use this judge not lest ye be judged as though it means you should never pass judgment on anyone. And I want you to see that's impossible in the Christian life. To fail to do this in a discerning way would be a lack of faithfulness in our part toward God. But what exactly is James telling us? James is warning us against speaking down to or down about other Christians. You could put that more broadly to other people, but he's actually specifically in this passage saying this about other Christians. He's warning us against speaking down to or down about other Christians. Now, the various translations mostly get this idea across. I mean, they're they're really good translations. They're done by fine scholars. But it is important to grasp that James is not condemning observing or even in some places pointing out the evil of other Christians. Um, we can find many examples in the book of Acts or in the letters of the apostles doing that very thing, pointing to people who are identified with the church and going, that's wrong, they are out of bounds, they are not behaving properly. Indeed, that's a necessary aspect of calling people to repentance. James is calling us to avoid speaking in a way which puts us up here and them down there. That's the key thing to see. He's calling us to avoid speaking in such a way that exalts us so that we're up here while the people we're talking about or talking to are down there. It's a matter of posture. Now, if you're using the New International Version, which is a really fine translation, you'll note that the New International Version uses the word slander. Do not slander one another. Problem with that is slander is not just negative speech. Slander is false negative speech. That is, it's always a defense for you against the charge of slander if what you're saying is true. Truth is a defense against slander. You can ask the lawyers in our congregation later on if that's, in fact, right. I am not a lawyer, but I'm pretty sure that's true. Truth is a defense against slander. But you can be factually correct and breaking the law that God is commanding us through this passage. That is, you can be factually correct, but failing to honor the Lord with your lips, and build up your brothers and sisters in Christ. Merely being factually correct is not enough. It is quite possible to speak the truth in a way that tears someone else down, either to their face or behind their back. James is making clear that anyone who speaks like this speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Why is he making that transition? He doesn't just say speaking evil against that brother. He's saying you're speaking against the law and being your judge of the law. Well, here's an important truth for us to keep reminding ourselves of. It's really simple. But I don't care how old you are or how long you've been a Christian, you need to remind yourself of this. Knowing the truth of God's word and applying it to other people is not the calling of Christians. Doing God's word in our own lives, which means by his grace through faith, applying God's law to our lives is the calling of Christians. You're going to have to keep reminding yourself of it. It's true, it's obvious but we need to apply that in our lives. Applying God's word to other people is not our calling. By God's grace, seeking to have his word applied to ourselves is the calling that we have on our lives. If we adopt the superior posture and talk down to or down about our brothers and sisters in Christ, we are actually speaking against the law in at least two ways. First of all, James has been talking about the royal law. The royal law is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He expounds that in James chapter 2. And it's very obvious he has that in mind, because when you come to the end of the section we're looking at, he talks about the fact that a person is speaking against his neighbor. It should be very obvious that, if you think about what loving your neighbor involves... um, The great interpreter is going to be Jesus Christ, and he gives us a number of explanations in the New Testament. Uh, You think of the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, the Good Samaritan doesn't come along and see the guy lying on the side of the road and say, "Well, you know, he probably deserved that." I mean, if he was a deserving poor person, I'd help him out. No, he doesn't know anything about him. He doesn't judge him. He helps him. That's what Jesus says. Loving your neighbor looks like. But that's not all that Jesus says. Jesus says a great deal, and one of the things that he's famous for is the golden rule. And the golden rule was simply an application of the royal law to love your neighbor. Jesus says in the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, beloved, not one of you wants other people to talk down to you or down about you. And therefore, you can't do that about other Christians and be fulfilling the law of God. Second, the posture of judging other people in this way puts us in a place which belongs rightfully to God and to God alone. As I mentioned, James clearly has the royal law in view because he ends verse 12 by saying, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Right? Now, so judging your neighbor with a condemning spirit is a failure to fulfill the royal law. But it is also setting ourselves up as the judge rather than as fellow servants of Jesus Christ. So you've got to think about the position you're in when you're talking, your posture. Are you talking to the person or about the person as a fellow servant of Jesus Christ and as a brother or sister in the kingdom? Or have you elevated yourself to a place where you're sort of like Jesus's junior executives? You know, it's Jesus, you, and everyone else you're talking about. Putting ourselves in the place of the judge turns out to be a very dangerous thing to do. Um, You know, the Bible frequently applies the standard, you know, by your own words, you will be judged. You think of Paul in Romans chapter 2 saying, oh, you know, you Jews, you're so good at applying this law to those Gentiles. Don't you understand? That's going to be applied to you too. As one scholar has put it, if you know the law well enough to condemn someone else, You know it well enough for it to condemn you in your own life. What I really want you to focus on this morning is not simply that activity, but that acting as a judge reveals a fundamental flaw in our faith. Setting yourself up as a judge reveals a fundamental flaw in our faith. Because rather than trusting the Lord and saying all his actions are good, you're saying, you know, the judge could kind of use a bit of help. You're putting yourself up on that level as sort of one of Jesus's junior executives. And James reminds us that that is not the way the living God is running his universe. James writes, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. Well, I should say, these are all truths that are easy to grasp, right? None of you would read this passage and fail a pop quiz on it right afterwards. You all know this. Well, so do I. But you are all tempted to violate this, and so am I. Beloved, we have to be honest with ourselves. There are times in our lives, hopefully not frequently, but there are times in our lives where we are all tempted to adopt this higher posture, to talk down to or down about a fellow believer even though we know it's not the right thing to do. The question I want to ask you is, why do we do it? I mean, why should that be so? Why, do, why doesn't simply knowledge that this is wrong keep us from doing it? I think the answer is this. We all crave to be considered significant. Truly, really that simple. And in the moment... Adopting a higher posture for ourselves as we speak down to or down about someone else can make us feel like we're more important. Now, that's a false significance. That's a transient significance. But ask yourself, isn't that something that you sometimes do? Even if it's only in your own heart, and you're not even verbalizing it. Here's the bad news. Our congregation might be particularly vulnerable to this sort of temptation. Now, please please listen to me. I'm not saying I hear you falling into this temptation. I'm really impressed with what a loving congregation you are. But I am saying this congregation may be particularly vulnerable to this temptation because the better educated you are, the more prone you are going to be to use words to elevate yourself and put someone else down. And you are a very well-educated congregation. So you need to mark this in your own life just as I do in my own. And yet, as we heard just last week, the Lord has a much better plan for us. A much better plan than us, in this very false and destructive way, trying to lift ourselves up. Right? Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, my brothers and sisters, and he will exalt you in due time. That's what faith is. Faith trusts that God will lift you up. And therefore, that sort of faith leads you to, with humility, building your brothers up, your sisters up, in love with your words. Uh, The sort of knowledge that puffs us up by putting other people down is scarcely worthy of the designation knowledge. This so-called knowledge puffs up, but genuine love builds up. Now, Think about our relationship with Jesus. The head of the church is the one person who could rightly condemn every one of us. Who could look down on us and say, how dare you act like that? And actually put us to full punishment. If Jesus were to do that, he would have acted with complete and perfect righteousness. But instead of doing that, Jesus Christ goes to the cross and shows us the full extent of his love. This Jesus tells us this. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This genuine love, a love that builds up, flows organically from faith. It comes from finding your identity and your significance in Christ and from the confidence that your Father in heaven really will exalt you in due time. Another wrong-minded way to try to establish our own significance is to boast about all the great things that we're going to do in the future. Uh, Look at verses 13 through 16 with me. Verses 13 through 16. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know that what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Well, to state the obvious, uh, James is not condemning all planning or making preparations for the future. Uh, After all, this is something the book of Proverbs repeatedly urges us to do. It, It is wise to plan for the future. Jesus uses that Multiple times in the Gospels to talk about us wisely planning for the future. Furthermore, James is not condemning people for setting out as entrepreneurs with a profit motive. Uh, When I was studying this passage, I was just shocked at the number of commentators who, who try to read these verses in this way. But but James is not condemning people who set out as entrepreneurs with a profit motive. Uh, Don't worry, in the next chapter, James is going to get around to people who are greedy, right, and condemning greed. But in this passage, what he's talking about is condemning presumptuousness about the future. Here's why that's important. If you think this is only about someone going off to make a great fortune, you can say, oh, that's not me. So I'm free, I don't have to worry about this. But every one of us is tempted to be presumptuous about the future, and that's what James is warning us about. I should say, by the way, the fact that um, there are so many commentators who kind of go down that track uh, does reveal uh, the degree to which Marxism has invaded the academy, including the Christian academy, something you should be aware of as Christians when you hear pastors and you read books. Uh, There's a lot of this really kind of evil philosophy that has made its way into the academic world as though it's just true by definition. That is not what James is talking about here. Let me give you a very short illustration. If you saw the original Top Gun, there are a lot of quotable moments in the movie Top Gun, but I think one of the most quotable uh, has to do with Maverick, the character played by Tom Cruise. If you watch the movie, you know that Maverick is a real hot shot a loose cannon. He takes a lot of risks when he's flying. He puts other people in danger. And one time after he does this, and what I think is a very quotable scene, his commanding officer calls this hotshot young pilot into his office and he says this Son, your ego is writing checks that your body cannot cash. And millions of people went on to quote that. It's kind of a nice quotable line. You know what James is saying? He's saying if you applied that standard to yourself. Uh, Are you dreaming and talking and boasting about the future, all the things you're going to accomplish, that you don't have the power to bring to pass? And let's face it, it's easy to think about the future like this, even to boast about the future, as though the future were entirely or largely in our own hands. But James says all such boasting is evil. Think Dan Doriani hits the nail on the head when he points out that this way of thinking forgets three things. It forgets our ignorance, it forgets our frailty, and it forgets our dependence upon God. So first, it forgets our ignorance. We think we can plan a year in advance and come and go as we please, but we do not even know what tomorrow will bring. Um, I hope this isn't a painful illustration for any of you, but uh, i give you just an obvious thing that happened in the life of our church this week. Tuesday night, I become aware that there's a property, a church property, in uh, Andover, Massachusetts, for sale. A property that looks like it would really fit our church very nicely. And between Tuesday night and Friday, most of our session and most of our building committee has toured this facility, and we gave them a non-binding letter of intent that we were going to purchase the property from them. We wanted this property. Saturday morning, we put together a two-page announcement. We sent it out to the church, and before many of you even opened up this email, we had to write again and tell you that they already sold the property to someone else. Well, happened so fast, you probably didn't have a lot of time to get your hopes up. Uh, and, and I really didn't, but I can tell you that I was already starting to imagine, you, know, you see, dude, you walk through the property, I was imagining us worshiping there and fellowship times there and nice grassy area for the kids to play outside. It was fantastic. Talk about not being able to predict a year. I couldn't predict the next 30 minutes. And neither can you. See, we ought not to boast about these things. But here's the good news. While our ignorance should keep us from boasting, our ignorance is no cause for anxiety at all. The fact that you don't know the future shouldn't cause you the slightest bit of lost sleep. Because the one who holds the future in his hands, every detail of it, even the small print of it, has become your heavenly father in the Lord Jesus Christ. He loves you with an everlasting love and he is working all things together for your good and for his glory. Of course, that means for our good too, right? The good of the church. Our ignorance should keep us from boasting, but our ignorance is no cause for anxiety. The second thing that Doriani reminds us of is that our boasting about the future forgets our frailty. James says... What is your life? I mean, it's Just a mist, you know, here today, gone tomorrow. Uh, when I was a kid, we used to go up um, to the Adirondacks. At least when my dad was having a good year economically in the summer. We'd run a little cabin for a week. And I loved it in the morning, you know, because if the, it's hot during the day, the nights are really cool, and you get up, and there's a mist across the lake. And, and you know, the sunrise over that is just a great experience. You could treasure it, but you can't hold on to it. Because just a little bit later, as the sun burns off, the mist is gone. And James says, you know, that's what your life is in this world. In this world, you are here today, gone tomorrow, and you don't know when tomorrow's coming. Right. So what are you doing boasting about the future? The Lord says that by the standards of eternity, our lives are as ephemeral as a mist. This leads naturally to the third thing that Dr. Doriani wants to warn us about. Presumptuous planning forgets our dependence upon God. Now, that's a good thing because we're dependent upon a God who loves us with an everlasting love. But it also means we can never boast as though we have the power to bring it about ourselves apart from his care. So he doesn't say, don't plan. He actually doesn't even say, don't say, hey, you know, tomorrow I'm going to do this. Next week I'm going on vacation. That's all fine. He's just saying we have to preface it, at least in our hearts, at least in our thoughts. And I want to encourage you occasionally, at least, with your lips. If you don't ever do it with your lips, you're probably not going to have it in your hearts. And the preface is simply this, if the Lord wills. Right, that's the point. If the Lord wills. Now, please don't misunderstand what we're saying here. It is still good to make plans, You know, the Bible commends the ant who stores up food in the summer so it has food in the winter. Of course, not for the ant's sake, but for your sake. Make plans. Be wise about making preparations for the future. God calls us to that. But we must always make our plans loosely, mindful that we are creatures and that God is absolutely sovereign over everything that happens. Beloved, even your next breath and the next beat of your heart is not in your control you cannot guarantee it, and neither can I. But rather than being a source of discouragement, this truth should bring us tremendous comfort and confidence about our lives. While we are not in charge of history, we know the one who holds every single molecule and every single act of history in his own sovereign and loving hands. Therefore, we can confidently trust the Lord, with our future. And trusting the Lord with your future is the meaning of biblical hope. James is calling us to that genuine faith, which leads to a love that builds up, and James is calling us to that genuine hope, which trusts the Lord for the future. And if we do those things, we're going to do good in the present. Look at verse 17 with me. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Now, at first blush, this could seem just like a proverbial statement. James often sounds that way, right? So you got this this one proverbial statement. James just drops it in here. It's not particularly connected to anything else. But I want want you to see that that's not the right way to read this passage. That, in fact, verse 17 follows organically and necessarily from what came before it. Uh, Try to think about an opportunity that you had. An opportunity that you had to do good. An opportunity that you did not seize. Yeah, really, I want you to think of one. Try to think of an opportunity you had, hopefully recently, to do good, an opportunity that you did not seize. Now, what is it you told yourself while you were not doing this thing that was good? Well, there are many things, but one of the most common things we do to rationalize not doing good in the present is to tell ourselves about all the good we're going to do in the future, right? See, I have a, a conception of myself as a kind, generous, giving people because I'm going to do good when I'm more secure, better off financially, have a better position, and so I don't feel bad about the fact that I didn't do the good that was right in my hand today to do. Well, that's one of the most common ways that people and by people I mean me, but I trust many of you, rationalize not doing good in the present. That connects directly back to the fact that we wrongly imagine that the future is in our control. There's a second way that we do this, too. One of the reasons why we don't do good in the present is we imagine that if we give of our time, our talents, and our treasure right now, that we are somehow going to come up short in the future. Right? Who are you hoping in? Here's an ironclad rule about where you set your hope. If you have set your hope on your storehouse, even if you set your hope on a storehouse that you know God has given to you, you will always think you need a little bit more. No matter how much is there, it is not enough. You need at least a little bit more. But if you set your hope not on the storehouse, but on the God who fills the storehouse... The God who loves you with an everlasting love, who gave you his son in Jesus Christ, and who has infinite resources that will liberate you so that you can be generous in giving right now. Beloved, do you know the only time you can ever be generous is right now? You can't do good in the future. You can only do good in the present. and That's what James is calling us to do. He is saying, if you have the power to do the right thing, and here in this context, it's loving your brothers and sisters. If you have the power to do good for your brothers and sisters in the present, and you fail to do it, well, he doesn't mince words. He doesn't say, well, that was a little bit of a bad judgment. He says it was sin. Because you're setting your heart, your hope, your faith in the wrong things. (laughs) Let us be a people who does not say to our brothers and sisters in need, oh, we're so sorry, be warmed and be filled, and then send them away empty-handed. And of course, that's not simply about goods. It may simply be our time, our words, a note of encouragement. But James is calling us to do good the only time that we can do it, and that is right now. Now, if you were paying attention to how James put this paragraph together, you may have noticed something I think is quite interesting. First, James calls us to faith, that is to the genuine faith which leads to a love that builds up. Second, James calls us to hope, that is to be trusting in the Lord for the future rather than presumptuously imagining that the future is in our own hands. Third, this genuine faith and genuine hope lead to concrete concrete acts of doing good to each other in the present. And we call those concrete acts of doing good to each other in the present, love. James is talking about faith, hope, and love. Here's why that's good news. Your life in this present age is a mist. But that does not mean that your life is a mist. It just means your life in this present age is a mist. After all, you were created and redeemed to live with God, to glorify and enjoy him forever. And James is calling you to say, don't invest your life on those things that are passing away, rather invest it into those things that remain. As the Apostle Paul tells us, when many things we hope for in this world all pass away, these three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. It turns out that the royal law isn't just good for your neighbor. Rather, as we become a people whose lives are genuinely marked out by love, we are becoming more of what we were created to be and more of what we were recreated to be in Jesus Christ. Beloved, you were created in the image of God. That means you were created to reflect God's character into the world. It's an extraordinary high calling. A high calling that was marred by mankind's rebellion against God. The good news is is that Almighty God will not allow man's rebellious no to have the last word. Rather, God's yes and amen in Jesus Christ swallows up our rebellious no. In him, That is, in Christ Jesus, you are being renewed in the image of God so that more and more, people can know what God is like by looking at you. Isn't that an astonishing thing? Not perfectly, of course. We know that. We want to rush to that. But by God's grace, more and more, people can know what God is like by looking at you. God is at work. Perhaps this is the reason why Paul gives the preeminence to love. Faith and hope are both directed towards God. Love is also directed towards God, but it's not only directed towards God, but it reflects who God is. That is, as you become a loving person, you reflect God's character into the world. So let me close this morning with these well-known words from 1 John. John writes...